identity and radicalization today, Wednesday, April 24th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The online magazine that may have provided the recipe for the bombs used in Boston is called Inspire. This expert says it's most dangerous when people read it together. And create a group dynamic where they sort of lead themselves along a path to increased radicalization and potentially action. Also trying to get back to normal in Boston despite the many unanswered questions. Who understands ever why people do stuff like that? I I don't understand it. I, I don't think I ever will. And later, the Syrian Electronic Army's hacking strategy. Going after the mainstream news organizations, I think, is clearly just a way for them to get widespread attention, and it's worked so far. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The last stretch of the Boston Marathon course will never feel the same, but today those few blocks of Boylston Street in Boston reopened to the public for the first time since the blasts on April 15th. Residents and businesses, neighbors to the bombings and all the tragedy they caused, are trying their best now to get back to normal. Freshly poured cement still drying on the repaired sidewalk. That was one of the more visible reminders of the events of the prior week. The world's Aaron Schachter went to downtown Boston and spoke with some of the people returning to their jobs on Boylston Street today. There are a lot more police on Boylston Street today than there normally are. There's some police tape, some construction. But otherwise, says Alec Papazian, This is a little weird. The only thing that really freaks him out is the makeshift memorial just outside his office building at 699 Boylston. It's just a little strange that there's like flowers and people taking pictures down the street just because it's like, you know, where you work every day. So that's probably the most surreal thing about everything. Hopefully it'll get back to normal pretty soon. But what is normal? Six stories above Boylston Street, the people in this office had an incredible view of the finish line. It's become a tradition here for people to work on Marathon Monday. The boss brings in lunch. Today, the first day back, employees got a visit from the FBI. One of the workers, Joanna Caladropoulos, is racked by images from that day. She says she's happy that she's back at work and life is getting back to normal. But she doesn't think there will ever be answers to why. Who understands ever why people do stuff like that? I I don't understand it. I I don't think I ever will. Um, I I don't know. It doesn't make me feel any better knowing the details, you know. Knowing why might help, says Gerardo de Fabridis. He's general manager at the Tannery, a high-end clothes and shoe shop at the corner of Exeter and Boylston Streets. It was doing brisk business on Marathon Monday. De Fabridis, who was working that day, says even if there are never any answers, people will move on with their lives. Yes, with some fears, with some uh, more caution, uh, and where they go, who they are with, uh, who's next to you. But unfortunately, there is no safe place in this world anymore. It can happen anyway. With that in mind, Boston authorities will likely beef up security all over the city, especially for next year's marathon. Tina Reed, who works at the 7-Eleven next to the bomb site, says so be it. 
you know, if you're inconvenienced by people trying to make you feel safe, then you're kind of a jerk. You know, I don't feel like it's Big Brother is watching. What, what are you doing that you're afraid that somebody's watching you? People across the river in Cambridge were inconvenienced today. Roads and bridges were closed as U.S. Vice President Joe Biden joined thousands of mourners at a memorial service for the MIT police officer allegedly murdered by the bombing suspects. Mourners had to make their way through tight security, including metal detectors and bomb-sniffing dogs. For The World, I'm Aaron Schachter in Boston. One thing we learned early on in the Boston bombings investigation is that the instructions for making pressure cooker bombs like those used in the attack are readily available on the web, specifically in an online jihadi magazine called Inspire. Inspire was a product designed for a very specific purpose, which was reaching out to folks in the West and trying to inspire them to take violent action in the West on their own. It was a niche brand for a niche market with a very distinct purpose. That's Brian Fishman, a counterterrorism research fellow at the New America Foundation. He spent years monitoring the magazine. Inspire was created by two radicalized Americans, Anwar al-Awlaki and Samir Khan. They traveled to Yemen to work with a militant group called Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Their online publication seems to have been influential in several criminal cases involving English speakers. What was unique about Inspire is that it had these two figures that seemed to know the West pretty well and the United States pretty well. And they produced a magazine, you know, with call outs and and a lot of the kinds of features graphically that you would see in a Western magazine. And they also wrote it in a relatively colloquial way so that... In theory, at least, it would appeal to readers that had grown up in the West but were interested in jihadi thought. So Anwar al-Awlaki was killed in a drone strike. What's up with Samir Khan? Yeah, Samir Khan was also killed in a drone strike in Yemen. So Uh, who runs the magazine now? It's a bit vague. After those two figures were killed, we've only seen one issue of Inspire be released. It is of a lesser quality, I guess, is, is sort of the odd way to put it. But one of the things that I think is important is that it hasn't gotten the same amount of coverage. I mean, we face a real moral dilemma, I think, as scholars that study this and as a media, because we have an obligation to tell the truth about the kinds of material that is out there that people are attracted to potentially and getting information from. But at the same time, there's a real risk that people will become aware of these things from conversations like the one we're having. Why do authorities continue to allow this magazine to exist on the web if it seems to pose such a threat? When these things get onto the Internet, they don't go away. They persist. You can still go find them. But you do have to go looking for them. There's often a notion that these sorts of materials are what radicalize people. And I I reject that a little bit. I think that folks that find and go looking for Inspire are interested in what it has to offer. Already. And what they really get out of reading a magazine like this is a sense of community and reinforcement and perhaps tips on how to actualize those ideas. Now, a recipe for pressure cooker bombs is said to have appeared in the pages of Inspire. Did you actually see that? Yeah, absolutely. But one thing to keep in mind is that Inspire is certainly not the only place on the Internet where you get can get a recipe for a pressure cooker bomb. Mm. People have been building those for decades, right? They're quite common, for example, in India and South Asia amongst Maoist rebels in Nepal and 
Eastern India. In fact, most of the SOPs for standard operating procedures for building weapons and explosives that you find not only in Inspire, but in other Al-Qaeda manuals, appeared first in other places, the Anarchist Cookbook, Mm. um, sometimes in old U.S. Army field manuals that they've gotten a hold of somehow, you know, things like that. And these ideas and the, the sort of technical information can is easily recycled from one source to another, from one ideology to another. Right. Well, Abby Hoffman in the 60s published in Steal This Book, Bomb Designs. Is it legal to have this magazine online, Inspire? Yes. I mean, authorities have talked about taking these things down. The challenge here is that most of this information is, is easy to replace. It's hard to chase it all down. There have been attacks at various times on some of the core Al-Qaeda forum websites, but you don't need to store Inspire on an Al-Qaeda forum. You can put it on any number of sites as just a repository where you download a PDF. And many of the gatekeepers that manage the web for us, and that's the, those are the Googles, those are the Twitters, those are the Facebooks, you know, they don't want to be responsible for chasing all of this information down and making a determination of what is odd religious thought, but not violent, not political, versus material that is really encouraging terrorism. And that's a fine line when we ask a government to draw that line, but it's also a fine line when we ask companies to draw that line. Brian Fishman is a counterterrorism research fellow at the New America Foundation. As we heard, the two main figures behind the radical online magazine Inspire were hunted down by the U.S. and killed by a drone strike in Yemen. Washington's heavy reliance on those armed, remotely piloted aircraft was a subject of a Senate hearing yesterday, and Yemen was on the agenda, too. Just last week, a U.S. drone strike on the Yemeni village of Wasab reportedly killed five people, including the target, a man said to be a member of al-Qaeda. A young man from that village traveled to Washington to speak to the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday. His name is Faraya al-Muslimi, and he's no stranger to the United States. Much of his schooling was paid for by the U.S. State Department. He attended a year of high school in California, and he considers himself a bridge for understanding between the American and Yemeni people. Faraya al-Muslimi began by telling me where he was when the drone strike on his village took place. I was in Sana'a enjoying a very warm, uh, uh, dear uh, dinner with the American colleagues uh, in a farewell dinner in the capital. So once you heard the news about the drone strike on your village of Wasab, what did you do? It's it's probably the worst feeling I, I, I had ever had. I started uh, uh, getting into my phone and my uh, email and uh, getting angry phone calls from villagers, from friends, relatives there asking me what is happening and more importantly, why is this happening? I was in a shock, probably similar to what my American colleagues were when they heard about the Boston bombing. And when you were on your cell phone with those villagers back in Wasab, did they see you as somebody who could explain this because of your U.S. background? Exactly. Uh, no one there knows anything about the world beyond their farms and beyond their village. And therefore, they only knew about America via me and via what I told them about America and my great time here. And they were pretty frustrated with the fact that they could probably themselves arrested the man who was the target. You, you, mean offic- was- you mean officials could have just gone into Wasab and arrested him? Officials who were even in Wasab, the local government was on him. In fact, he was uh, still came out of a meeting with the head of the local government. Therefore, they were surprised that this man is wanted. 
you know, they're very simple farmers. And it was fearful, the fact that something weird, noisy comes from the sky and throws a bomb at night and people don't know what is that. And it doesn't make sense to them that if you had picked up the phone and told them, you know, arrest this man, bring him to the capital, we need him, they would have done it themselves. You know the fear in the U.S. of another 9-11 and that drones could be a way to monitor suspicious activity on the ground and to halt it if need be. How do you explain that to Yemenis? I have not met any single Yemeni who does not realize the threat of al-Qaeda. I have never met anyone who doesn't think al-Qaeda is a threat to us and Yemen, and this entity has to be knocked down and damaged. And that's why people are angry, because whatever happened has actually helped al-Qaeda grow. That's what we continue to hear, that that drone strikes actually uh, foster the growth of al-Qaeda and of of extremism generally. But how have you seen that on the ground in Yemen? Look, I think the problem is when you draft policies in D.C., the things that is totally missed, I think, is the war with AQIV in Yemen is not anymore. It's a war of mistakes. The fewer mistakes, the more you win. Unfortunately, the drones have made more mistakes than AQIB has ever done. That's al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Exactly. They have done less mistakes than the drones have done. And the problem is villagers could not understand that this man is even a threat to the central government, let alone to the U.S., After your testimony yesterday, do you think you connected with and influenced any lawmakers? We told them what's wrong. Whether to get influenced or not, that's that's their decision. But it's great that this is the first time you are finally talking about it. Faraya al-Muslimi testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday about drones and a drone strike on his village of Wasab in Yemen. Faraya, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Still ahead on the world, radical Europeans who fight in Syria and the few who return to Europe even more radicalized. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. I don't even have one single American friend. I don't understand them. That's what Boston bombing suspect Tamerlan Tsarnaev reportedly told a photographer who did a profile of him some time ago. Tsarnaev came to the U.S. as a teen with his Chechen refugee family. He enrolled in college for a period of time, took up boxing, even spoke of boxing for the U.S. someday in the Olympics. So what happened? Professor Marcelo Suarez Orozco has researched the experiences of young refugees assimilating to life in the United States. He's the dean of UCLA's Graduate School of Education and Information Studies and co-author of Learning a New Land, Immigrant Students in American Society. The most important point to keep in mind is the vast majority of these kids struggle, but they eventually find their path. I've studied children from war-torn regions of the world. They face the traumas of the lands that they leave behind. They often come in through multiple family separations. There are issues of language. Uh, there are issues of identity. There are issues of really trying to fit into a society that is radically different from the countries they left behind. I mean, you've studied the effects of assimilation on young refugees in Boston and the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, you say that for most kids, they, they emerge from these stresses uh, pretty well. What seems to be the switch for those who don't? Well, many things. Kids that have problems connecting. In our research, we found that just having one friend 
one friend who speaks English is a very good predictor of their academic adaptation, their, their, their kind of the long-term pathway into academic achievement, and then the transition eventually to college. Uh, many of these kids are not making friends. Uh, the older brother is quoted as saying in the, in the newspapers. Tom Erlon, so did, Yeah, he didn't have a single American friend. So that's a, a, an issue to worry. Uh, another issue to worry is the, the, the multiple family separations and the kinds of reunifications. Uh, many of the kids that have had the most trouble connecting are kids that uh, had very difficult transitions. They left their families behind or when they reconnected with their families, they weren't able uh, to really make meaningful relationships. Also, the lack of mentoring. In every case where a kid from, a, from one of these countries does well, they've really connected with a mentor. People have been coming, refugees have been coming to the United States for years and years, decades. Did something change generally that shifted the dynamics that has resulted in this Generation 1.5, as, as it's been coined? Well, what has changed is that now immigrant origin children and refugee children included are the fastest growing sector of our of our child and youth population. Ninety percent roughly of all our growth moving forward will be via the U.S. born children of these immigrants and refugees from all over the world. We take in three times more immigrants than the second largest country of immigration in the world. In your study, Marcelo, uh, there's a question, and some of the answers are, are kind of telling. Uh, the question was, what do you like most about being here, as in the United States? Uh, tell us about some of the responses to those and what they yeah, suggested that, to you. Yeah, that was pretty shocking because we discovered that the kids really amazingly register these stereotypes about, you know, illegal immigration, about immigration and crime, about... Um, so that was a finding that was very, very unexpected, uh, how children pick up very early on a kind of anti-immigrant attitudes, mm. you know. The response also uh, kind of shows a, a brighter side to this story. An 11-year-old Haitian kid said, what I like most about the U.S. is there's less killing here. Yeah, that's true. So the and it's also sad. We asked another, I think it was a parent of a, of a Haitian child, what, you know, so tell us, what do you like the most about being in the, in the Boston, in the Cambridge schools? And the gentleman said, well, I like it that they have school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, meaning, you know, in their country, they don't have school every day because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when the death squads are coming. You don't know when the gangs are coming. And so there is a load of, you know, gratefulness. Your daughter went to Cambridge Ringen Latin High School. How does this all feel to you? Well, I think everybody is shocked. Our heart goes to the families of of the victims. This was uh, our neighborhood. This is all shocking. It's all incomprehensible. It's all senseless. And uh, we're all shaking up. Marcelo Suarez Orozco, Dean of UCLA's Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. Thanks for your time. Sure. We wanted to hear from someone who's been through this experience of assimilating to life in the U.S. after arriving here as a young person. 28-year-old Zuhur Ahmed in Minnesota took a break from her job today to speak to us. She's from Somalia but came to the U.S. from Syria when she was 13 years old. Here are some of her thoughts about her transition to a new life in America. I think it's true for a lot of immigrants and a lot of young people. Oftentimes you're trying to um, work between your uh, American identity, whatever that is, um, where, where without you knowing, in a sense, you do become um, American in the, in the sense of the, the main, mainstream American culture, um, but then somehow have to maintain your old culture and tradition because your parents are not as um, much uh, mixed in or assimilated, which is a word I don't like using. 
And I always, you know, see myself as a pure 100% Somali. Obviously, genetically I am, but I thought even through my culture and my way of life, I am. And obviously, my Muslim faith. When in 2011, I went back to Somalia, and that's when I realized how American I am in, in the sense of my culture, my values, and my beliefs um, in, a, in a lot of everyday life thing. Um, and how much I was different from the uh, Somalis that lived in Somalia. It's like, oh my God, you know, that's when you realize how much your day-to-day culture and your, your values and your way of thinking, it's different than the, the, the Somalis over there. And then that's when you get your aha moment that you are an American. That was 28-year-old Zuhur Ahmed speaking with us from Minnesota. Perhaps you came to the U.S. as a youth. What was your first moment like that you first felt like an American? Add your story at theworld.org. We've been hearing a lot about Chechnya this week. That's because of all the news surrounding the Boston Marathon bombing suspects. The Sarnayev brothers have family roots in Chechnya, a Russian republic in a region with a long history of violence and extremism. But Chechnya is not all bloodshed and tragedy. Coming up in the program, we're going to hear from a writer who thinks we need to give the positive side of Chechen culture a fair hearing as well. Nathan Thornburg has written a blog post titled Nine Things to Love About Chechens. So for our GeoQuiz today, here's your challenge. Name three positive things Chechen culture is known for. I'll start you off with one clue. It has to do with footwear. We'll discuss that and some of the other things to love about Chechens with Nathan Thornburg in just a few minutes. Follow all our coverage of events in our city of Boston and around the globe. You can find us online at theworld.org and follow us on Twitter. We are at PRI The World. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, ahead, trying to give Chechens a better name. There's a tendency to stereotype them as these hardened warriors, but they are every bit as three-dimensional as any other uh, group. Uh, The first thing we put on our list was that uh, they have the cleanest shoes on Earth. And later, eking water from the Australian desert. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The minaret of an ancient mosque in Aleppo, Syria, was destroyed in fighting today. And as usual, government forces and rebels blamed each other for blowing up the 11th century landmark. More than 70,000 people have been killed in Syria's civil war, which is grinding into its third year now. The plight of the Syrian people attracts sympathy and support in wide circles. But some people, mostly young men, have gone a step further and volunteered to fight alongside the rebels. One family in Belgium was surprised recently to see one of its young men, Brian de Mulder, in a combat video purportedly from Syria. It's not uh, Brian that uh, was brought up by his mother. Brian was athletic, he was sportive, he was a golden heart, and we never saw him like this. For me, it's a programmed robot. That's Brian's aunt, Ingrid de Mulder. He changed because he became fanatic. He wanted to pray only. He left school. 
And then he started talking in a fanatic way, like, I can do whatever I want, and even if I die, I'm not afraid. I go to the paradise of Allah. The family hopes Brian sees the light and comes home, but that's not necessarily the wish of intelligence officials in Europe. This week, the head of counterterrorism in the European Union, Gilles de Kerkhove, warned that men like Brian DeMolder could come back radicalized and become terrorists in their home countries. This is what he told the BBC. Not all of them are radical when they, when they leave, but most likely many of them will be radicalized there. And uh, as we've seen in a previous situation, this might create a serious threat when they get back. Shiraz Meher has been studying closely the phenomenon of Europeans getting radicalized in Syria. He's a senior research fellow at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization at King's College in London. Uh, Shiraz, what is the scale of the issue here? How many people are we talking about? I think from the research that we've been putting together, we're finding that there's something like 5,500, maybe 6,000 foreign fighters in total that have gone over and participated in this conflict since it started. And in Europe, we're finding about just under 600 foreign fighters from the continent have gone over and fought in Syria. And you study mostly Europeans, but have you seen any movement from North America? We have found a few cases of North Americans going over. We we are actually compiling uh, global figures. We've just rounded off uh, our European ones, but we are we are looking uh, around the world. And there's a, a very interesting case of an American uh, who went over uh, Eric Omar Haroon, uh, who's now been arrested um, and and I believe is uh, about to stand trial at some point in the United States. And uh, according to Al Jazeera today, there was a kid in Chicago reportedly picked up by the FBI for trying to join an al-Qaeda affiliate fighting Bashar al-Assad. Is that an outlying example, or do you, do you see any trend coming from North America? At the moment, there isn't a, a massive pattern um, of North Americans going over to fight in Syria. It does seem to be a, a lot of Europeans, primarily because Europe is, is providing easy access with free movement across the continent and the Turkish border being the principal access point that many people are using to get into Syria and fight there. But I would expect to see as this conflict intensifies and if it prolongs over time, there's no reason why um, sympathizers from the United States wouldn't come over, especially as you have the first few people going. Once they come back, these networks start to build. People with combat experience tell heroic stories. They're seen as uh, as heroes in the eyes of uh, vulnerable uh, young individuals who then want to emulate them. So if the, the longer this conflict goes on, really the worse it is for everyone. I mean, as for these uh, larger numbers in Europe, what, what is the problem exactly? I mean, what do Gilles de Kirchhoff and other intelligence officials actually worry about? So at the moment, the first issue is who are these guys going there to join up with? And I think it's fair to say, actually, in, in truth, most of them are going and joining up with the more conservative Islamist elements. So if not al-Qaeda, certainly at the top end of the spectrum in the more religious sphere. And then what you're going to see is that these fighters will be heavily indoctrinated with religious zeal, but they're also going to be brutalized by a conflict that is one of the worst we've seen in a long, long time, just in terms of the sheer scale of destruction and barbarism. And then on top of that, these people will be returning home at some point, and these will be highly trained fighters who are fanatical, and we've seen the ramifications of that after Afghanistan in the 1980s. Have you been looking at the suspects in Boston and, and what they kind of seem to indicate about radicalization, if that seems to be, if that is indeed the narrative? 
Looking at the guys in in Boston, I think we're we're finding a, a very complex picture right now. They, to my mind, don't fit many of the traditional patterns. They um, seem to have been, uh, uh, on the one hand, radicalized by the internet, um, and uh, certainly in the case of the older brother. And and I think with Syria, that's also primarily what we're seeing uh, take place. There was some posting of Syrian videos um, on the Facebook profiles or the social network profiles of the men implicated uh, in Boston. So the, the Syria conflict is one that remains important to lots of jihadists because it confirms that narrative, in their mind at least, that there is a war against Islam, that Muslims are being persecuted, and that the response to that needs to be a militaristic one. Shiraz Meher, fellow at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization at King's College in London. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Syrian conflict seemed to spill onto the web yesterday. A group calling itself the Syrian Electronic Army claimed responsibility for hacking the Twitter account of the Associated Press. The hackers posted a false tweet on the account about supposed explosions at the White House that briefly sent stocks tumbling on Wall Street before the AP could shut its Twitter handle down. Jillian York is with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She's been following the Syrian Electronic Army. So, Jillian, they claimed responsibility for these hacks. Technically, they're known as fishes. Um, but how do we know they actually did it? We don't know that they actually did it, but they've claimed credit for it. It, it does fit the pattern of the previous attacks that they've conducted. It sounds like an obscure group. Who are they? What, what do they want? They're a group that is supportive of the Syrian government, uh, possibly funded or, or controlled by the Syrian government, but that's not totally clear to us. And they essentially, their goal is to get their name out there and get their side of the story out there. They've, they've said that the mainstream media is not reporting on the Syrian conflict accurately, and they aim to get what they deem the truth out there. What, what's the evidence that Bashar al-Assad's government does support them? A couple months after they emerged, the President Assad uh, referred to them in a speech in June 2011, basically calling them uh, an electronic army that's a real army in virtual reality. So we don't, while we don't know if they're funded or, or you know, directly controlled, um, we definitely know that they have the support of the Syrian government. Now, two weeks ago, uh, the group took over a BBC weather Twitter account and an Al Jazeera website, and they flooded it with pro-Assad propaganda. Why this tactic? Why go after these uh, news organizations? Yeah, there have been some other strange ones as well. Um, going after the mainstream news organizations, I think, is clearly just a way for them to get widespread attention, and it's worked so far. But they've also gone after smaller sites, um, including, I think, radio station in San Diego, um, you know, the BBC Weather Channel. And to me, that's evidence that they're distributed in the same way that Anonymous is a distributed group. What does a distributed group actually mean? So Anonymous has said many times that Anonymous is not unanimous, and that means that they've got all sorts of differing opinions throughout the group. And the Syrian Electronic Army seems to be the same way. Um, I've seen over the past couple of years groups on Facebook, for example, promoting the Australian Brigade of the Syrian Electronic Army or, and things like that, which you know says to me that there are a number of different types of hackers working on this project. And a number of different types of hackers all over the world? Are they centralized in one place? No, it definitely seems that they are all over the world. There's clearly some in Syria, but there are also plenty of supporters living outside. And uh, do you know about their affiliation to uh, the Syrian government at all? Uh, yeah. So originally, when they or when they first emerged, some researchers found that their initial website was registered with the Syrian Computer Society, which was, in fact, run by Bashar al-Assad uh, before he became president. And I think that they found that 
it's, you know, the only group of this type that's registered on a government network. And so, you know, we've seen groups like this in Bahrain, in China, you know, sort of working on the pro-government side, potentially paid by the government. But in this case, this is the only one that has a clear affiliation. And the Syrian Electronic Army, have they said anything about how they would like the conflict in Syria to be uh, to be covered, to be characterized? Uh, yeah. So so in a recent interview, they said that their mission was to defend their proud and beloved Syria against a bloody media war. And so they take the same stance as the Syrian government that this is either a media or a proxy war, that it's not something that the Syrian people actually want. So are these hacks, are these fishes, as they're technically known, are, are they truly enough to draw attention to the conflict in Syria? I mean, do, do they feel people aren't paying enough attention? Is it getting them the attention they want? Uh, it is, but I, you know, I'm not sure that their particular uh, tone or style works on their intended audience. I'm not sure that you know people looking at the BBC Weather Channel, for example, or following the AP Twitter feed are, are necessarily going to be swayed to their side. I mean, it does seem like a major disconnect to kind of hack into the, the AP Twitter feed and say something about explosions at the White House instead of talking about Syria. Yeah, yeah, that one does. Um, and that's what makes me suspect that they are distributed because, you know, some of their fishes or hacks have been really incongruous with others. Jillian York is Director of International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, in which specializes in free speech issues in the Arab world. Thanks so much for your time. Sure, thank you. The Boston Marathon bombings investigation has focused a big spotlight on Chechnya. The two suspects' family, the Sarnayevs, have Chechen roots. And Chechnya itself has long been associated with a violent separatist war against Russia. Nathan Thornburg thinks we need to consider another side of Chechnya. The former Time magazine foreign correspondent has written a new post on his blog, Roads and Kingdoms, to counter the cultural stereotypes that many have about war-torn Chechnya. He titled it, Nine Things to Love About Chechens. So, Nathan, let's focus on the qualities of Chechens that may be getting eclipsed right now. What are the good things you've learned about Chechnya and Chechens over the years? Well, the things that we really wanted to talk about uh, on Roads and Kingdoms were some of the idiosyncrasies that made them a little bit more human. The first thing we put on our list was that uh, they have the cleanest shoes on earth. Yeah, what's that about? Essentially, the Caucasus, because there's so many unpaved roads and because they lie uh, in this mountainous area, become a series of mud republics in the spring <laughs> and in the fall. So you have a lot of opportunities for, I guess, uh, dirtying your shoes. The thing that is remarkable and somewhat admirable about the Chechens is they never gave into this. And in fact, shoe wear and having the cleanest shoes possible became somewhat of an obsession. When I first lived in Moscow during the first Chechen war, the rumor was that the Russian security forces would profile for Chechens on the subway systems and in the streets of Moscow, not by looking at their faces, but by looking at their feet. You saw an inexpensive pair of black shoes that was meticulously clean that might warrant a document check. Foot profiling. So is it just the shoes or are Chechens generally pretty well turned out head to toe? Yeah, we actually, number eight on our list of nine was uh, one word, fedoras. (laughs) Right. Chechens uh, are more famed, I guess, for their traditional lamb's wool hats. But if you ever look at the sort of first independence leader of post-Soviet Chechnya, this uh, Jokar Dudayev, The best pictures that I've always seen of him have him rocking a very classic fedora, and he had a lot of different shades. And it wasn't just him. It's a sort of beloved accoutrement for Chechen men. Think about this republic that's had a lot of trouble, doesn't have a lot of money, but they have a lot of self-pride, a lot of dignity, and part of it is definitely showing off for each other. 
Now, it may seem banal, but Chechnya has an important folk dancing tradition, you point out. Yeah, it seems at first to be sort of chauvinist, that the man sort of stamps and struts around and the woman kind of glides in a way that makes you think the man is having all the fun. But actually, the woman has all the power in this dance. She can either sort of highlight what the man is doing, or if she's not impressed, she can just sort of glide away and make him act a fool on his own. It's very subtle, but a really powerful indicator that the gender dynamics, which have really seemed to harden in the Western view of what Chechens are about, they're actually much more complicated than you would think. New York City has Alicia Keys in New York State of Mind. I gather Chechen singer Liza Umarova reflects a Chechen state of mind. Yeah, she, when I sort of put the poll out to my friends in, in Chechen diaspora communities, she was the one who came back as their favorite. I really love her voice. And the main message that sort of threads through all of her songs is really a powerful message of peace. So she calls out, I think, a lot of the culture of fighting. But she has some really lovely love letters to not just her people, but also to Grozny, the city that she's had to leave. Finally, Nathan, you had a chance to visit and drink strong black tea with the widow of former Chechen president, Jokhar Dudayev. Her name is Allah. What impression did the former first lady of Chechnya leave on you? She represents for me a sense of what Chechnya could have become. She was a classically trained uh, painter in the Soviet days, and her and her husband, who, who was this great Soviet general and then the first leader of independent Chechnya, really represented a, a westward-facing Chechnya. They weren't uh, dogmatically religious. They were spiritual, but also very educated. And she is living this life of exile now, having seen her husband be assassinated, having lived through the wars, uh, but she's still such a gracious person, surrounds herself with her paintings. It's it's a very interesting and I think different view than people might think of, of what Chechen leadership could and did look like. Journalist Nathan Thornburg's blog post, Nine Things to Love About Chechens, is online at roadsandkingdoms.com. We'll post a link to it at theworld.org. And Nathan, uh, for you and our listeners, let's end with a bit of uh, the Chechen singer, Liza Umarova. Great to speak with you. Thank you. So this singer Lisa Umarova, clean shoes and fedoras. As Nathan Thornburg mentioned, three possible answers to our GeoQuiz today. If you've got other positive Chechen characteristics you'd like to mention, leave us a comment at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's tough living in the middle of the desert. No surprise there. Yet hundreds of thousands of Australians do just that across the outback, the vast arid expanse in the center of the country. This month, we've been bringing you stories from Australia in conjunction with our partners at NOVA. Today, NOVA's Ari Daniel Shapiro sends us this audio postcard about one outback community and how people there manage to quench their thirst. There's not much to the town of Winton, population 954. It sits in the heart of Queensland and is just a small crisscross of about a dozen streets. But the thing is, Winton shouldn't exist at all. Temperatures routinely climb over 100 degrees in the summertime and rain is scarce. The secret to this town's survival sits deep underground. It's called the Great Artesian Basin, says Bill Barr, Winton's water and sewage manager. It's just a, a very large underground lake. 
Technically, it's an aquifer, a thick slab of sandstone soaked through with water. And this underground reservoir is massive. It sits beneath almost a quarter of the continent. Take the volume of the Great Lakes and triple it. That's how much water we're talking about. Enough to submerge all land on the planet by a foot and a half. The discovery of the Great Artesian Basin 135 years ago opened up a vast portion of Australia for people to settle. To get the water from below ground up to the surface, Barr says it doesn't even need pumping. It actually comes up under its own pressure. Barr escorts me over to the water station. I don't know whether you can see. He points to a blue vertical pipe sticking out of the ground in the distance. That pipe brings the water up from almost a mile below the surface. Barr opens a spigot. You, you can hold your hand under it. The water's hot, about 100 degrees, but actually, by this point, it's been cooled. When it first comes up, it's close to boiling. The water picks up a lot of heat underground. It also picks up sulfur, so this water takes a little getting used to. It's no mountain stream. It's just got smell to it. The smell of rotten eggs. But Barr says it's no big deal. If you let the water sit for probably half an hour or so, like in an open jug or something like that, it is very good water to drink. I can vouch for it. I tried some. Now, this water, it originally fell as rain in eastern Australia. Craig Templeman is Winton's tourism manager. So all that rain soaks down through the valleys into hard rock a long way underground, and then it rolls down through here. And that water has remained underground for a long time, as long as a million years. Some people are concerned that the water is being extracted far faster than it's being replenished. In fact, the government is now encouraging residents in the outback to conserve their water to protect the basin. Bill Barr isn't too worried about the water running low, but he says Winton and other communities in the outback would be in big trouble if it did. There is no other water supply around. And while it may smell a little funny... He says here in the outback, it's the only way to survive. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Winton, Australia. Tonight on PBS, Nova heads to the outback. Watch as scientists dig up the fossils of monstrous animals that lived there millions of years ago. And next week, we'll hear about some monstrous animals that live in Australia today, saltwater crocodiles. We'll learn how Australians live with these potentially deadly animals. In central Australia, the terrain of the land and the culture of the Aboriginal people have inspired a new sound. Reporter Marissa Neff introduces us to today's global hit. Hiatus Coyote self-released their debut album, Talk Tomahawk, on Bandcamp.com just a year ago. But heavy hitters like The Roots' Questlove and the queen of neo-soul herself, Erica Badu, are already raving about their future soul sound. The band's from Melbourne, not a city known for any kind of soul music legacy, or Australia for that matter. But lead singer and guitarist Napalm says that gives them room to experiment. Australia, I mean, as far as like the modern age of where we're from, it's very young. So I feel like people have more freedom to explore different ideas because they're not necessarily confined or tied to tradition. Nay 
says she was influenced early on by the American soul music her mother played at home. Some obvious reference points are the psychedelic soul albums of Stevie Wonder in the mid-70s. But lots of other influences factor into Hiatus Coyote's sound. From early 90s acid jazz to new soul to the operatic riffs on Dalib's flower duet featured here. recently got turned on to Hiatus Coyote, but was lucky enough to catch their New York debut at a sold-out show. When the band played the sun-dappled Nakamara, the enraptured crowd sang along. I'm actually pretty over the moon that Nakamara is what people are feeling the most, because it's crazy. It's like that was recorded with five mics. It was the first take, all of us in a room. Nakamara was inspired by the beauty Nay found in the terrain of Central Australia. Some years back, she and a friend traveled there and immersed themselves in its Aboriginal culture. The word Nakamara is the skin name that was bestowed upon her travel mate by members of the indigenous Yindamu community. And Nay says that the journey deepened her appreciation of her country. To be honest, it's not really that long ago, you know, that... Um, the indigenous people of Australia were um, in the flora and fauna write-ups in encyclopedias. And, like, as an Australian, it was really powerful to go there and immerse myself in the culture that's been there 40,000 years. And it was kind of a rite of passage traveling on the land there and um, connecting to the culture of the land that I was born on. Australia's remove is in part what's allowed Hiatus Coyote to hone their soulful sound with such creative abandon. Though their debut album is steeped in retro influences, the band's unwillingness to be hemmed in keeps their music rooted in the now. For The World, I'm Marissa Neff, New York. You can check out the music video for Nakamara, which was shot in Australia's Northern Territory. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Join us again tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.